That is the music of British composer Gerald Finzi, and that is the opening movement of his suite drawn from his incidental music to Love's Labor's Lost. This is an early comedy by the great William Shakespeare, and uh, it is one of those plays that uh, is not done all that often, and so it is a rare treat when one has the opportunity to see it live. You have that opportunity this coming weekend and the following weekend at the University of Wisconsin Parkside. They are performing Shakespeare's Love's Labor's Lost. And uh, my guest for the first part of today's morning show is Brian Gill, who is uh, part of the theater faculty at UW Parkside and the director of this production. Brian Gill, we welcome you back to the morning show. Good morning, Greg. Always good to see you. Glad to have you here, and it's always fun to have the opportunity to learn a little something about uh, a, a work that uh, is, for most people, just a name, just a title, and, and probably for a whole lot of people, they've never, ever heard of this. I want to say that my most direct acquaintance with Love's Labor's Lost is the, the music that we just played and the fact that probably uh, the single most unforgettable hour of television I can ever remember was an episode of ER, from the first season that was called Love's Labor's Lost. Have you ever seen it? I haven't seen that, no. It could not be more different than this play. It's a (laughs) very tragic story about a woman who experiences tragic complications in her pregnancy. Oh, boy. Ultimately, uh, although the baby is saved, she does not survive the ordeal. And it's, I mean, honestly, the most wrenching hour of television I I have ever seen. And the name of that award-winning episode is Love's Labor's Lost. And uh, uh, I remember not too long after finding out that that title was not just conjured up out of nowhere, but it was actually pulled from the title of this Shakespeare play, which I just assumed at that point was some sort of terrible tragedy as well. <laughs> and, uh, and in fact, Love's Labor's Lost uh, is a sparkling comedy and apparently one that uh, in which Shakespeare really demonstrated some tremendous ingenuity. So enough of, of my understanding of Love's Labor's Lost. Let's get on to the person uh, who knows a whole lot more about it. First of all, Brian, tell us a little bit about why this ended up being selected. And did you have a hand in this choice to be part of this year's Parkside theatrical season? Yes, um, I did. One of the, the tricky things about Shakespeare... Um, Shakespeare's plays is that obviously they're large casts and when Shakespeare was writing and performing these plays there were no women actors so uh, the, the the great struggle in in casting Shakespeare um, is the fact that you have all of these amazing male roles and then you've got two or maybe three really strong female roles so when we were when we were planning our season we wanted to make sure that there was really good opportunity for 
our female actors uh, as well as our male actors, um, which can be surprisingly tricky, uh, you know, and, unless you want to do an all-female cast of this or, or really um, do a lot of serious gender bending. And um, so we were, we were talking about the plays and trying to figure out what we wanted to do. And I really like Love's Labors. I've always been fond of it. And I thought, okay, well, that, that gives us, you know, our, our four uh, strong male leads as well as four strong female leads. Um, there's a, a, a smaller female lead that's, that's uh, part of the, what are known as the rustics, the, the kind of the, the locals, uh, the non-aristocrats. Um, and then if I take this one role, uh, it's easy enough to shift that role from male to female, and that gives me a good a good handful. Um, you know, it's, it's not not even, but um, that that gives me several. Uh, the, the 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 cast is now comprised of of uh, a good a good difference between male and female roles, um, and and it and and it's fun. You know, I mean, any any time you can show people that Shakespeare is irreverent and silly and um, and and you know modern English as it was. We just happened to be looking at it 400 years after the fact. Right. Uh, it seems like Shakespeare is always in the mix in a Parkside theatrical season. Am I right about that? I um, mean, you're in and you're out? Yeah, oftentimes it's every other year. We, we, we try to do a, a, a classical um, piece in our season every year. Uh, for for quite a while, it was every year, and then we did a Moliere, and then you know, and then shifted back. But um, I think it's I think it's very important to to produce these plays and for people to see these plays. So uh, from the little study that I did, it uh, sounds like this was a, a relatively early play by Shakespeare. Tell us where this kind of falls within the framework of his career as a playwright. Sure. I, it, it always struck me as, um, you know, it was, it was one of his early comedies. Um, it was written in the mid-1590s, um, first published in Quarto in 1598. And it, it's uh, kind of this, this, this young hotshot playwright strutting his stuff a little bit, uh, mm. you know, newish on the scene. Um, the, the the play is very much a, a battle of the sexes between the lords of Navarre and the ladies of France, and their weapons are language. And mm. the, the, the the word play in in this play is is amazing, and it's a lot of it is rhyming verse, which is always a, a you know in part a, a sign of showing off. Mm. Look how clever I am. You know, somebody says something and it ends with a, with this word and the next person drops their thought using a word that rhymes with the, the word ah. that was just used or, or playing on each other's um, language. So it's not a character standing there in a sense, reciting a couplet, reciting no. a play oh, that rhymes. God, it's, no. It's dialogue <laughs> that rhymes, and there's something really special about that. Yes, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And I'm, I am uh, a, a huge proponent of no fourth wall in Shakespeare. Shakespeare didn't write plays to be performed on a proscenium stage. He didn't write plays with the idea that the audience sits quietly in the dark and observes what's going on the the audience in Elizabethan theater is a part of the story they're the they're the final puzzle piece so uh, 
the actors, uh, you know, I, I, I found moments and encouraged the actors in this production to talk directly to the audience. Uh, there's a point where one of the characters is in the audience for, uh, for, for a scene. Um, so that, that, you know, ideally, um, the audience is a part of the story and, and, and don't feel, they, they don't feel like passive observers. They feel like they're, they're in on the ride. Hmm. So uh, tell our listeners kind of the heart and soul of this story of this king and his three companions and this uh, improbable project, in a sense, <laughs> that they undertake. Sure. Well, the king of Navarre decides he is going to um, lock down the kingdom for three years. He and, and by the way, what is Navarre? Oh, my Lord. Navarre is the kingdom in which the play takes place. And is that a completely fi- it's, fictional No, place? it's now a oh. part of Spain, but oh, it, was, it, okay. it was its own kingdom. I think oh, was, no. Okay, now that makes sense to yeah. me. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it. I, I my assumption is it sounds kind of mysterious and, and foreign, which, of course, the Elizabethans would have been all over. Right. But so the king decides that he and his three lords will lock themselves away from the world, essentially, and focus on um, academics. They will, they will almost starve themselves from food. Women are banned from they, – they're not allowed to come within a mile of the kingdom – and that that uh, the kingdom of Navarre will become what he refers to as a little academe, hmm. um, and of course that would be a, a profoundly boring story. So uh, we then suddenly find out that uh, the princess of France is on her way for uh, diplomatic reasons because there is a, uh, an, uh, a uh, not another kingdom, but there is there, there is a land dispute going on between her father and that was going on between her father and and the king of Navarre's father um, over uh, Aquitaine hmm. uh, it is it is a it is a <laughs> it is a plot that is brought up at the very beginning of the play and then is never mentioned again <laughs> ah, okay <laughs> but so a convenient plot contrivance exactly that, you know? yes shamelessly so so the the princess is there um, she arrives, so they are forced to have to deal with um, this situation. And of course, the princess has brought three uh, of her ladies with her, and um, how handy! <laughs> exactly, and uh, and love and wackiness immediately breaks out with all of the lords um, trying to pursue the ladies, but not let each other know they're doing so. And it's uh, y- there are glimmers of a lot of. Um, of the fun comedic silliness that appears in in many of Shakespeare's other plays. There's overhearing of letters and there's eavesdropping and there's mistaken identity and disguise. Mm. And uh, it's, it's just a lot of fun. Hmm. So, so each of these men, at least most of the time is trying to give the appearance of being faithful to their abstinence when in fact they're not being. Absolutely. Yep. And then of course it all collapses Upon them, <laughs> oh, as as things absolutely must. So, uh, in a little just cursory glance at a few facts about Love's Labor's Lost, one of the things I read is that uh, this play contains the longest single word found in any Shakespeare play. Does that sound it does. like it's it, tr- it contains the 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 longest word? It contains the longest scene. 
and it contains the longest monologue. Um, now, this uh, I, I worked on uh, from several different cuttings of this of this um, script because I really wanted to streamline it. I wanted to point out the the comedy of it, and mm. I wanted to really make it about these eight young people and their. Um, it sounds cliche, but their journey from, in some ways, from um, carefree immaturity to suddenly having to be adults. Hmm. So uh, the longest word in Shakespeare's plays does not appear in this in this production. Ah, uh, but um, and I'll get it wrong. But the word and I, I for the life of me can't remember what it means. But the word is honorificabilitudinitatibus. Ah, okay. Say that. Five. Say that yeah. once, fast. No, yeah, I'm not even going to try once. But uh, but uh, but the long speech is in there, and it's not uh, it's not the the what people may think of as you know the stereotypical oh dear lord here comes the big speech. It's a beautiful speech. Um, the, the the lords have found each other out, and um, Barone uh, is asked to kind of help them justify the fact that they're they're breaking their words, and uh, and he just drops this amazing speech about um, uh, love and and women's eyes and what can be learned uh, through gazing into them and oh. uh, it's just it's it's a it's a cracker of a speech wow it sounds like a great play and it sounds like there's no particular reason why it should be as obscure as it is do you have any theories on why this has been crowded off by by other plays by Shakespeare, including other comedies that sure. are much better known. Yeah, I think um, it. As I said, there there is a lot of wordplay. It is it is a lang- they're all language plays, but there's um, it's a similar thing with with Merry Wives of Windsor, which at its heart is the great 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 grandmother of the sitcom. You know, I mean, it's mm. it's it's kind of an I Love Lucy episode. <laughs> um, but there's within Merry Wives of Windsor. There are a lot of jokes that don't translate anymore. You know, mm. just just kind of you know, kind of like when you when you see a, a film from the '90s or a TV show from the '80s, and there's a very specific reference ah. that was hysterical. That was hysterical. <laughs> yes, uh, that that was absolutely hysterical at the time because it was so it was so specific. But 20 years down the road. Everyone goes. What does that mean? Hmm. Uh, Four hundred years down the road, it's even it's even further gone. Hmm. Um, so, as a director, you try to look. You know, you, you try to find what you can use from that, um, and and sometimes what. Okay, we're just we're not going to do this little chunk or this plot line. Um, isn't isn't helping the story that this production wants to tell mm-hmm. um you know the 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 honorific habilitudinitatibus yeah um though very funny and and very clever um didn't really serve what what i wanted to do with this production interesting so you're trying to uh serve up this play in a way where it will really land with audiences of 2019 absolutely and mm-hmm. and you know, in, encourage the radical thought that Shakespeare can be very fun and 
doesn't have to be three hours long <laughs> and um, and can be silly. There's a huge amount of silly in this production. Mm. Silly is okay, especially <laughs> when we're talking about a comedy. So very good. What does the production look like? Are you doing this in a way that is at least in, in, in a rough sense, authentic? Or are you doing something with the setting that we've, is we've, out of the ordinary? We've set this production in, in uh, around about 1927. Hmm. Um, and part of my reasoning for that was it, it, it made real sense to me. So you've got the, the king and his lords that, um, you know, they just, they kind of just lurch from one extreme to the other in this play. And I thought, in, in looking for an interesting time period to set this play in, the 20s made great sense because we had just come out of the, the, the horrors of, of World War I, um, death and destruction on a scale that you know, mankind didn't even know we were capable of, so mm. well done there. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, and, then, and then there was a, this absolute headlong sprint into the opposite of that with the Roaring Twenties, or um, the French refer to as the Crazy Years. Hmm. Um, that you go from death and destruction on a grand scale to jazz and booze and dancing. And hmm. uh, I mean, you know, essentially the, 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 the 1920s equivalent of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Hmm. And that spoke to me in regards to what the Lords were trying to do. And if, if they logically following that through, if, if these characters were veterans of the First World War, then they would absolutely lurch toward the opposite, right? So, so they come home and they're going kind of crazy and the king says, enough of this, we're going to become philosophers and academics and then the ladies arrive and they lurch you know mm. from that to this this new pursuit and and then um and then at the end of the play without any giving away any spoilers um they all are are put in a situation where they they need to decide whether or not they're going to grow up mm. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Brian Gill, and we're talking about Shakespeare's comedy Love's Labor's Lost, which is uh, going to be performed at UW Parkside this weekend and uh, the following weekend. So it is a relatively rare opportunity to enjoy this early comedy by Shakespeare that just does not show up nearly as often as... uh, Comedy of Errors or Taming of the Shrew or A Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, let alone the big tragedies that uh, also occupy so many seasons. This is Shakespeare that's just a little bit out of the ordinary, uncommonly seen, on, especially on local stages. And here it is at Parkside this weekend uh, and the next. So generally speaking, Brian Gill, uh, when you are working with students, what is their attitude regarding Shakespeare? Is this an opportunity that, by and large, they tend to welcome, or is it more of kind of a eat your broccoli, it's good for you kind of <laughs> scenario? I mean, um, and and I'm sure it's not easy to to generalize or summarize, but I mean, uh, I'm surely you have some kind of sense of that. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, 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 all of that, a combination. You know, um, there is excitement, there is intimidation. Um, it's I've been very fortunate in my 
training with Shakespeare, having trained at the Globe Theatre in London with true masters of the craft. Uh, I've been very fortunate with my professional career, acting career, um, of, of working with people that that get Shakespeare and hear Shakespeare and have the ability to teach Shakespeare. Um, because if you if you can't understand the words, uh, it, it it becomes for for audiences. I believe it becomes an exercise in how stupid am I, uh, and no one likes that, uh, mm. rightfully so. Uh, and I think it feeds into the idea of Shakespeare um, is for boring smart people, uh, mm. whereas Shakespeare was writing for an audience that the majority of whom were uneducated. They couldn't read and they couldn't write. And on top of that, Shakespeare was literally inventing words and expanding expanding the English language. <laughs> um, so I always go back to how is it that an uneducated groundling, right, the people who stood on the ground to watch the play, um, could understand Shakespeare and went to all of his shows religiously and yet people with undergraduate degrees and master's degrees don't get Shakespeare and don't like Shakespeare. Right. So my job then becomes making sure um, the actors in the production know what they're saying and why they're saying it. And they, they, they know all of the, the vocabulary. They know the meaning. They know the intent. Um, and, and sometimes it is as technical as me saying... Um, you know what, Greg, in this sentence, lift this word. Mm. And then they do, and suddenly everyone goes, oh, I heard it, you know. Mm. Um, or it's, uh, hey, Greg, what does this phrase mean? And you say, oh, I don't know because <laughs> I didn't look it up. And, mm. okay, well, there's your problem. Um, so it's, 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 it's one part teaching it as you go and, and then one part directing it. Interesting. Um, and once... Any actor, once whether it's a student actor or it's an actor who's been in the business forever, once that actor starts hearing Shakespeare, once Shakespeare makes that that leap from 400-year-old uh, archaic English, which it's not, it is 400 years old, but it's not archaic. Um, once it makes that leap from that to sounding like it was written last Tuesday, uh, everybody starts getting very, very excited, hmm. and it, it becomes a whole different ball game. Right. How difficult uh, is it for your students to memorize Shakespeare? Does it fall easily on the brain when it comes to that right. matter? Yeah. Um, sh sh when Shakespeare is writing in, in verse, especially rhyming verse, so uh, meaning the, the heightened language, the poetry, that um, if you want to bore somebody, you refer to it as iambic pentameter and watch them gloss over. But it's <laughs> it's a rhythm to it, right? It's da 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 da, unstressed, stressed, unstressed, stressed, unstressed, stressed, etc. And there are ten beats to each line, so there's a musicality to it. Mm. Um, it's actually uh, it's it's naturally the way that our uh, vocal patterns fall out. English speaking uh, vocal patterns find uh, fall out. So um, that helps because it's like, you know, how you can learn a song really quick, you mm -hmm. know, because of because it's there's a musicality to it. And then if it's rhyming verse, you know, you know, OK, the last word rhymes with <laughs> this and it's got these ba 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 ba. So I'm halfway through the line. I know the next word has three syllables, mm -hmm. you know, so you can kind of find your way through. 
if it's not written in verse, then it's written in prose. And that can be, you know, that's just the way that it looks like a paragraph, you know, and, mm. and sometimes that can be a little trickier. Mm. But it's just, um, as with anything, if you don't understand the meaning of what you are trying to memorize, it's going to be a monster to memorize. Yeah, I should think. Yeah. It'd be like memorizing nonsense syllables. That's exactly sense. it. That's yeah. exactly it. So um, they're, 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 they're pretty quick at it. This, this cast was, was very quick with, with getting what we call off book which means memorized. Right. Uh, how different is the actual acting style when one is acting Shakespeare versus acting something that is not Shakespeare or in particular something that's much more contemporary? I mean, I think uh, to somebody casually looking in from the outside, it seems like it has maybe a, a, a certain air of artificiality or kind of a larger than life mm -hmm. quality to it or something like that not not uh, quite so nitty-gritty realistic as we think of it, at least with certain other kinds of of acting do you buy into that kind of distinction or do you feel like all acting is essentially the same thing and that the way somebody acts in a Shakespeare play should not be profoundly different from the way they act a role in a play by Tennessee Williams or something like that. Absolutely. Um, I, I, I hate phony Shakespeare. There's nothing I hate more than, you know, I say to my students all the time, it's that, it's that uh, perfect storm of you've got three dudes standing in triangle formation facing, you know, slightly out to the audience because they're, they're cheating out because it's proscenium and they're all speaking in very deep manly tones <laughs> and essentially shouting at each other and there's no meaning to the language whatsoever. Um, it's, I, I want to see truth and honesty. I want to see um, these characters dealing with uh, these, these huge challenges. You know? But I want to see that in any play. Um, Shakespeare in Hamlet, I think it's Act 3, Scene 2, um, Hamlet is talking to the player king, who is uh, his favorite actor, because Hamlet is a theater geek, because why wouldn't he be? And um, he says to the player king, speak the speech, I pray you, as I pronounced it to you, trippingly on the tongue. But if you mouth it, as many of your players do, I had as leave the town crier speak my lines. <laughs> and the entire speech is an actor's manual on naturalistic acting. Wow. He says that hold as twere the mirror up to nature. Uh, shoot the word to the action, the action to the word. Um, and it's this brilliant it's this brilliant, it's literally Shakespeare saying, this is how you have to act my plays. And it's 200 years and several countries to the left, of, <laughs> to the, depending on where you're looking at the map, right. of Russia and Stanislavski's theory of, of uh, realistic acting. So um, now that said, you have to technically, um, you have to attack the language. There is a muscularity to it. You can't, right. you can't speak this stuff casually. And you have to bring the the energy. You have to bring the fire to the scene. Um, so it's 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 four footed. Not you know you're not you're not on your heels with this stuff. Right. You're 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 it's actor athlete kind of kind of stuff. The stakes are huge. It is live or die. Um, and it's at best it's it's always in the moment. Mm. You know I talk to my actors about put it on the line, act on the line, make the discovery right then and there. Because otherwise, it's just a bunch of people reporting on things they've already figured out. 
Mm. And that's boring. Nobody yeah, wants to see that. Lose the visceral yep. nature. Reminds me of why I think even a, a, a singer, a young singer, a voice student who really is only interested in musical theater, mm-hmm. and, and many of them tend to only be interested in very contemporary musical theater that's very close to the musical style that is close to them and right. means the most to them. I, it is my abiding belief that somebody like that also needs to sing a love song written in 1750 in Italian because uh, just as an expressive exercise to have to be as persuasive uh, in in conveying love for someone uh, in sort of antique music and in a foreign language. I mean, you exercise expressive muscles that you otherwise don't need to ex- uh, exercise when it's something really, really close and accessible to you. Not that the other is better than the other, Absolutely. Uh, but, but it is a different experience for the performer, albeit one that they might not, at least at the outside, find as, as enjoyable or as, sure. as, as, as natural and effortless. My first audition a very long time ago at Steppenwolf Theater Company in Chicago, um, I had been told, no Shakespeare, no Shakespeare, no Shakespeare, you know, modern edgy pieces. And uh, I did my audition, and I was on my way out, and the casting director at the time uh, hollered after me. He said, Brian, I said, yeah, what's up? And she said, uh, do you have any Shakespeare? Hmm. And I started laughing, and, and she said, I know, we don't do Shakespeare. Um, I said, okay, well, I said, can I ask why you want to see me do a Shakespeare? And she said, if you can do a Shakespeare, you can do anything. And I said, okay, and I did a Shakespeare. Mm. She was pleased with it. But, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. You know, even even if you are doing up-to-the-minute modern um, 21st century theater, the, 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 a, a foundation in Shakespeare will always serve you well. Mm. Well, certainly your students have had to uh, enjoy this experience of of uh, encountering this uh, comedy called Love's Labor's Lost, as you said earlier in the interview, set in the 1920s, which sounds like a really, really uh, in- intriguing choice. And uh, with just a couple of days of rehearsal left, you are feeling good about the preparation? I am, yeah. You know, the, the we're in dress rehearsals now. Um, that final week is always uh, a sprint to the finish line. But the, the whole process has, has, um, has, has been just fun been enjoyable um it's always fun watching as i said it's 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 always fun watching actors hear shakespeare and and realize that oh my god this is a modern play (laughs) yeah it speaks to us all these years later Mm -hmm. hundreds and hundreds of years later absolutely so love's labor's lost uh, opens this weekend at the university of wisconsin parkside and runs the following weekend uh, as well, is this on the main, st- the Com Arts this Theater stage? This is in or? the. This is in the Rita. This is the uh, black box space. Okay, which I love dearly. Right, there's all kinds of ex- ex- interesting things that can be done in there. And, yes, indeed. And it's uh, often a very close and intimate experience for the audience. So, uh, if people are interested in attending, uh, what should they do? Uh, they can call the box office at two six two five nine five two five six four. Uh, they can also visit the box office online at boxoffice at uwp.edu. 
Very good. Brian Gill, the director of the University of Wisconsin Parkside's production of Shakespeare's Love's Labor's Lost. Fun to talk with you. Always good to see you, Greg. Thank you. Best wishes to you and your cast. And here's a little more of Gerald Finzi's incidental music to Love's Labor's Lost to finish out part one of today's morning show here on WGTD. You're listening to The Morning Show on WGTD-HD, your gateway to public radio. I'm Gregory Berg. This Friday, the 3rd of May, is a very special event, which is aligns with the uh, longtime celebration of the University of Wisconsin Parkside's 50th anniversary, 50 years in the business of higher education and 50 years of connecting with the uh, outside community. And they are having a very... Uh, special event this uh, this Friday, uh, a nonprofit breakfast, one of many such events which they have hosted over the years. And for this very special 50th anniversary edition, if you will, they have invited a very special guest to be part of the proceedings, Susan Dreyfus, who is president and CEO of the Alliance for Strong Families and Communities, which is a strategic action network of social sector organizations. And she will be the keynote speaker for Friday's event, speaking at 10 o'clock in the Student Center uh, about a special report which the Alliance commissioned, which examines the impact of community-based organizations, the difference that they make in people's lives, and the forces that sometimes keep them from doing the work that they uh, otherwise set out to do. We have a few minutes to speak with Susan Dreyfus about this. We welcome you to The Morning Show. Thanks, Craig. It's great to be with you. Uh, Explain, first of all, how you are using the term community-based organization, or CBO. Sure. Um, well, first of all, it's interesting. In Latin, nonprofit means no progress. And hmm. in essence, uh, nonprofit is simply a charitable tax status that, that our sector uh, um, uh, enjoys and something that's very important to our connection to community and community's connection to us. 
That being said, though, we believe that the use of the term nonprofit in some ways can equate to non-business or people not seeing these organizations as more than charities. So as we got into our report, one of the things we realized is that there is a lack of understanding of the larger value that our sector brings to society. And so from that work, where we landed was that we really are community-based, human-serving organizations across the country and a critical third sector in America. But the continued use of simply nonprofit to describe us doesn't get at the essence of who we are, why we are, what we do, and how we do it. Right. So community-based organization is a more helpful label or helpful title. And at its heart, of course, it is the idea of an organization that is based right in the community versus uh, some other kind of organization that might do good work uh, in the community, but does it from afar. I assume that that distinction is really important. That's super insightful on your part, Greg, and I really appreciate that because um, one of the things, most of my career has been spent in the public sector. I was honored to be the first administrator of the Division of Children and Family Services under Governor Tommy Thompson uh, years ago here in Wisconsin. And I just didn't know what I didn't know as a public sector leader, and that is the larger role and value of this critical third sector in America. We were created by community, for community, in community. We're governed by community. One of the things that blows me away in this sector is voluntary governance a board members who come together from across the community to ensure that all people in their community can do well. And if you really think about it, at the heart of our sector and something now that our country is just finally realizing as it's being confronted with the massive expense of health care and, and, and the, what, what seems like the intractable ability to get to better health and then that cost curve, is really our sector builds the human capital of America. Uh, we are critical to a vibrant society, and um, it's really important that people understand that we're not just providers of programs and services under contract with government. We are critical agents of change in community and build our country's greatest asset, and that's our people. Hmm. So the Alliance for uh, Strong Families and Communities, of which you are the head, uh, commissioned a special report to examine Uh, the importance of community-based organizations. And uh, one of the things that uh, I found most interesting as I read your uh, executive summary is not so much about the good that they do, although I think that's, of course, absolutely uh, essential, but you go into some really intriguing specifics about the roadblocks that keep community-based organizations from accomplishing as much as they otherwise would. And and one of the roadblocks, uh, which you touched on earlier in the uh, interview, is is that of public perception of, of the general public not fully appreciating the significance of such organizations. Uh, beyond that, talk about some of the operational shortcomings and uh, uh, capacity constraints that also are a hindrance to such organizations. Oh, thank you so much. You know, if you ask me what can keep me up at night in my job, and remember the Alliance is a national uh, strategic action network of organizations across the country. And so, you know, I get the honor and the privilege of moving around the nation and 
kind of having a lens to what's happening. And if you ask what can keep me up at night, it's really two things. I've been in health and human services now for over 30 years, and I've never been more hopeful in my life. Never have I been more hopeful in my career that we're standing at the, at the, at the cusp of being able to achieve breakthrough results in this nation that we have long always wanted. We are not going to solve these issues one program, one service at a time, whether we're talking about what feels intractable about poverty, whether we're talking about what it's going to take to bend that cost for health care and get better health, whether we're talking about every child in this nation being able to succeed in education. And I've never been more hopeful in my career that we're standing at the ability to do that, and yet we know that to do that, no one of us gets that job done alone. It truly takes an ecosystem of interconnected actors with our sector being but one of them. The other thing that can keep me up at night, if it, if it, the first one is my great hope at, that we will seize this moment. My second is a fear. And my second is that I worry that what America is not understanding is the critical role of this sector and how financially fragile it is. And one of those roadblocks that is, is very important in this report is that if we are going to achieve the breakthrough results we want to achieve through this larger power of ecosystem, public sector, in partnership with our sector, in partner with education, in partnership with healthcare, in partnership with law enforcement, that truly can get breakthrough results to happen, in partnership with the faith community, then, then the sector has to be able to be its best self. And this was one of the most rigorous 990 reviews, 990s are what community-based human service organizations, any quote-unquote nonprofit in America, must fill out a 990 form, and it is publicly available information on the financials and other information about the organization. This, com this report commissioned the most rigorous 990 review ever done. And we looked at over 45,000 organizations over a three-year period of time we could track change over that period of time, and this is what we found. There's 218,000 of these community-based organizations in this country today, the organizations I'm talking about. They provide critical human services, right, behavioral health care, housing, early childhood, older adult services and supports, you name it, domestic violence. And, and there's 218,000 of them. Their collective spend is $200 billion, which might sound like a lot to someone, right? But when you match that against the total spend in our nation on health care, which is close to $4 trillion, it is like an eyedropper in Lake Michigan, okay? The reality is that we found is that th these organizations are operating many times on less than 30 days of operating cash. Now, that is a problem, and that can keep me up at night that this critical sector has basically become financially so fragile. Hmm. And what our country needs to understand, what funders need to understand, what policymakers need to understand, that was one of the roadblocks in this report, is you can't build the organizational capacities you need, the people that you need, the technology that you need, the level of of, of infrastructure that you need to be able to, to have for your people to achieve their greatest results. You can't get that done if you don't have the cash to pay for it. Hmm. And yeah. so that was a that was a huge eye opener, I think, for many people because what was really amazing 
is that that the organizations at 10 million of operating revenue and above were not that healthier, were not that much more healthy financially than the smaller organizations. Hmm. And you know, it's interesting. We often talk about uh, the the praiseworthy efforts of community-based organizations to accomplish all that they do with constrained funds, not stopping to realize that those constraints can also choke such organizations and sometimes kill them off altogether, and particularly at a time when we are dependent on these organizations uh, more than we than we ever were before. It is critical that we face up to this. We have just a couple of minutes left, but I, I want to move on to uh, your recommendations, and there are many that you make, in, in, including uh, uh, being open to innovation and strategic partnerships and so on, and all of this is spelled out in your in your uh, recommendations. You also say that it is a time in which we need to modernize regulations and that this can make a huge difference in the well-being of these community-based organizations. What are you getting at there? Yeah, so th- th- um, that's a great question. And just for your listeners to know, as they go to the report on our website and really delve into it is there's not a single recommendation in this report that we did not find happening somewhere in the country. And so I'm going to all use Colorado as the example on this one. But the bottom line is no different than business. And right now as a nation, we are really all about regulatory reform, especially at the federal level and governors are for their businesses. These organizations are businesses too. And while some regulation is critically important, and we always have to keep mind of that because it ensures equal access and treatment of all people. It ensures critical levels of safety. There are, we need regulation. And I, so I'm not saying don't swing a pendulum too far, (laughs) but what we found is just classic, outdated, duplicative, very costly with very little return on conflicting regulations. An organization that in one program is being regulated by five different state agencies, right? And some of their regulations are in conflict with one another. Hmm. Now, try wrestling with that, right? So the, the, we've got some organizations that have so much, so many regulatory entities that they work with. They, they've got somebody that that's all they do. Well, that's a capacity issue, right? We're taking dollars and having to use it in that way. Governor Hickenlooper out in California, he said enough of this. And just as he was trying to give regulatory relief to for-profit business, he said, we've got to do it for our nonprofit partners, too, because they're critical, critically important to the state of Colorado. They went through a process. They reduced regulations on the sector by 20%, and they put in place a process that not a single regulation could be changed or could be created without it first, first, going through a community-based organization panel to really get underneath why is it needed, how is it needed, how best do we do this if we need to do it? And if we don't need to do it, let's stop now. Wow. <laughs> a very, very intriguing notion indeed. And it gets at the heart of why we regulate things in the first place. Your, your, uh, your report is uh, full of other recommendations as well that are so important, give us lots to think about whether or not we're even part of a, uh, a community-based organization ourselves or or, or uh, receiving services from them, uh, or just a a concerned member of the community. There is so much 
that is important for us to know. We want to remind everyone that Susan uh, Dreyfus is going to be speaking at the nonprofit breakfast at the University of Wisconsin Parkside this Friday, the 3rd of May. The event is all morning long, but her her speech uh, in the Student Center uh, occurs at 10 o'clock, and she will be speaking on the topic of a national imperative, joining forces to strengthen human services in America. Uh, Susan Dreyfus, I thank you so much for making time in your busy schedule to speak with me on the morning show, and uh, thank you for all of the good work that you do. You bet. Thank you too, Greg.